Well, good morning, Edgewood. Thank you so much for being here today. My name is Kyle, and I'm the discipleship pastor uh, here at Edgewood. And today I want to start with a story from a book called Refugee for Life by Innocent Mugambi. And in this book, Innocent recounts living the majority of his life in refugee camps across Africa. Innocent wasn't given his unusual name until he was two years old. His father made the change in recognition that his son was an innocent sufferer in the middle of both family and national conflict. Innocent was born in a refugee camp in the Congo. He was one of five kids. His parents had fled neighboring Burundi in 1972 when over 200,000 Hutus were massacred in just three months. Educated Hutus such as Innocent's father, who was a businessman, were especially targeted resulting in the family's decision to flee. Now, Innocent grew up very poor. He didn't wear a pair of shoes until he was 12 years old. He also suffered from discrimination. He felt like he didn't belong even in the Congo where he was born. But when war broke out in the Congo, Innocent was forced to move again, first to Zambia, and then at the age of 24 to refugee camp in Malawi. There he met Henry Joseph, the pastor of a Baptist church, who later introduced him to American missionaries, who gave him residence at a Christian university there in that country. After 27 years, he was finally no longer resident of a refugee camp. But while there, he secured a scholarship to study. At first, he wanted to go into politics. He wanted to help people who were, grew up in a similar situation as himself, but he ended up studying theology. I felt as though God was saying, he said, You are here to be equipped so you can go back and help refugees in a different way, dealing with both their physical and spiritual needs. While he was studying theology, Innocent had a vision to start an organization to help refugees. God was preparing me, a refugee since birth, to return to my fellow refugees with a message of hope. Today, Innocent and his wife, Larissa, have settled in Malawi with their three children, And instead of becoming bitter and angry at his situation, he's digging deeper roots and giving back, thriving in a place he was once a refugee. The couple run the organization There Is Hope, a charity supporting refugees with education programs, job opportunities, and theological training for church leaders. He says this, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the actions of a local pastor. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the church. Now, have you ever thought what it would be like to have never had a home, not just homeless, but born as a refugee or born into exile or captivity, never truly understanding the meaning of that word home. 27 years is a very long time, but what about the 40 years that the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness? Think of the children that were born there into that situation. And what about the 70 years in exile in Babylon? That was a lifespan for most of those people. And they had been taken captive by a pagan kingdom. Life as they knew it was all but over. Now being removed from the promised land as they were to Babylon, there's parallels there to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were kicked out because of their sin, leaving that perfect place. But when we use that phrase, thriving in Babylon, what does that mean? How do you thrive in exile or under captivity? And for the Children of Israel at that time, that was encouraged for all of them to thrive, but it would only be a reality for some of them that would listen to that message. Now, I do not believe that we as American Christians are in exile today, as some believe. We'll get into that a little bit later, but we are living in an increasingly godless society. 
So in that sense, how are we to thrive in Babylon? We must be prepared for anything that comes our way. Now to understand this story, we need to know the backstory and the context. This is key. First off, where was Babylon? Well, you can see in this map here in the Neo-Babylonian Empire, you see Jerusalem there on the left. They were taken there all the way over to Babylon, across that desert, but maybe they went over the top. But Babylon there is basically modern-day Iraq now. And this, taking them from this country into a foreign land, this was prophesied by Jeremiah in chapter 21, verses 4 through 10, where God literally told them that he would be fighting against his own people and that they must surrender, otherwise they would be killed. And why is this? Well, it's because of their sin. They were, again, bowing down to idols and worshiping false gods, and God gave them over to their enemies in order to bring them back and redeem them. There's a painting I came across while I was studying for this message, and this is the Babylonian captivity. They're leaving. You can see the, the sorrow, their dejection on some of their faces while in the background their city burns and the walls are being torn down. Imagine what that have, must have been like for them. But there were actually three different times that there were captives taken. The first time was when Nebuchadnezzar, that famous king, attacked in 605 BC. This is when Daniel and some of his peers were taken captive. But then a second time, In 597 B.C., this is when Jerusalem was captured and thousands at the time were taken. And then the third attack in 586 B.C. This is where the the temple was destroyed, the city was burned, and the remaining were taken other than the poorest of the land that were left to deal with the, the land and take care of it. Now one commentary says this, according to Jeremiah 52, 28, 3,023 Judeans had been carried captive to Babylon in 597 B.C., including Jehoiachin, his household, and certain priests and prophets. Word had reached Jeremiah and Jerusalem that some of the exiled false prophets were predicting, as Hananiah had done, a speedy collapse of the Babylonian power and a consequent return of the exiles to their homeland. Jeremiah, realistic as always, felt it his duty to warn his exiled compatriots against any further self-delusion and wrote a letter to them in 594 B.C. So he's helping them to understand you're going to be there for a long time. These false prophets telling you that you're going to go home soon is not true. We're going to see that here in this passage. But Jeremiah's letter came after the second group of captives had been taken. So we're going to be in Jeremiah 29, uh, 1 through 10 this morning. But before we get into that passage, let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this, this day. Thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have here, God, to study uh, your word, to apply it to our lives. Lord, may we never take that for granted. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into this passage and to see how even this passage can apply to us today. But God, I pray that today with everything spoken, everything said, everything read from your word, God, it would reach the ears, the hearts of those here today. Lord, I pray that you would meet everybody where they're at, no matter what they're dealing with, whether life is going well or if life is really tough right now. God, I pray that you'd speak to them today. And thank you for this message. I pray that you give me the words in your name we pray. Amen. So in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 10, it says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear Sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Could Jeremiah really be saying this? Telling them to just go on like life is normal? Basically, he's telling them, and this is our main point for today, is this. Wherever God has you, be all there. Again, whether life is going well or you're in exile in Babylon, be all there. God is still in charge. In verse 8, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. They, They thought they were going to go home soon. They were hoping that what these prophets were saying was true, but... No, Jeremiah is helping them to see and setting the record straight here for them that they're going to be there for a very long time as we see in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So this was a lifetime for most of them. So let's break down this passage. This letter was a huge wake-up call for Israel. Surely they were experiencing one of the Five stages of grief. Maybe you've heard this in psychology or through therapy. But we see these different stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And they were still some, in some of those early stages. Some of them were still in that denial stage. They still thought they were going to go home soon as they were being told by some of the prophets. Surely many of them were angry. They were bargaining. Surely this can't be happening. Depression had set in for many. But... At this point, most of them still had not even accepted the fact, even after being there a few years, that this was actually going to be their future reality. But imagine what it must have been like for them. What if something like that did happen here to us? And you might be thinking, oh, that could never happen here. Don't you think the children of Israel had the same thoughts and sentiments? They were God's chosen people. Some of us here today might have that same air of entitlement, being American, being Christian, putting those two things together. There's this growing sense of nationalism in this country. When you put those things together, you might have heard this term called Christian nationalism. Now, what is that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Maybe you've heard different people define it in different ways. The best understanding of this definition, though, I can see is this. It's the idea that America is like the new Israel, chosen and set apart, the only hope for the world. But hopefully you understand here today that God is the only hope for the world. Not a country or a certain people group. God's primary means of spreading his glory in the gospel is the church, not the state. Now, God has given us incredible freedom here, and I believe we should love this country and support our troops and vote 
and be a part of the political process and maybe even protest at times. But to say that we here in America live in a Christian nation and that we are God's chosen people now, I just do not see that in Scripture. In 1 Peter 2.9, we see this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is talking about the people of God, the body of Christ, the church, not a certain country or people group. A few years ago, I wrote a blog post entitled Christian Before American, before any of this was even going on, because I was starting to recognize that a lot of this thinking was infiltrating the church and people's minds and hearts. We must realize that our allegiance must be to God first and foremost. But what if you were driven from your country? What if America, as we know it, no longer existed? Put yourself in their shoes. Let's look back at Jeremiah 29, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar took them away, but it says God said, I sent them into exile. Perhaps some of them, for some of them, this made them angry. God did this to us, and perhaps for others, maybe this brought some comfort because God was still involved in that whole process. But no matter what their feelings, they were to exhibit a posture of presence, as one commentary says. Which brings us back to our main point. Wherever God has you, be all there. Now, what are the four things that they were reminded to do here and exhibiting this posture of presence. Number one is to build houses. There's a level of permanence when you build a house, and you're not just renting or living in some kind of temporary housing, building houses. Now, this would be difficult for most of us today. I don't think most of us could build our own house. If I had to build my own house, I would end up living in a cardboard box, probably. But I got good friends here, like, Matt Williams and Steve and Ethan Curry, who helped me with renovation projects around my house. People actually know what they're doing when it comes to those types of things. But they were supposed to do that, to build houses and to live in them and to move on with life. They're supposed to plant gardens. There's something uniquely satisfying about eating the produce that you grow yourself. Our family did this for the first time this summer. Uh, A picture here of my son who was picking some Uh, tomatoes in our little garden. We had tomatoes and zucchinis and peppers and some strawberries, and hopefully we'll get that big watermelon. I doubt it, though. (laughs) But it's a lot of fun to do that with your family and to eat the things that you grow yourself. But they were told to do this. They need to do this to be a part of the land that they are now living in. Number three, it says get married and have children and grandchildren. Multiply. This is what they are instructed to do. Now, we see this mandate in different places in Scripture. We saw this in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. It said to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, they didn't actually have children until after the fall, which made it much more difficult, obviously. But then we see that after the flood as well, when most of humanity had been wiped from the earth, they were told to be fruitful and to multiply again. And now they're being told in exile to be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? To be fruitful and multiplying, having children in these Terrible times and places. But if God is telling them to in exile, should we not now? Now, I understand the thoughts and the fears that come into this. Like I said, living in this increasingly godless society, we live at a time that there's a lot of unknowns and not 
knowing what's going to happen, especially when you're watching TV and you're just seeing what's going on out there. But if you think about history, has there ever really been a good time to have kids? There's always been some sort of wars and conflicts going on. If you study history and you look into this, one of these numbers that I found was it says throughout recorded history, there's only been 268 years of peace throughout the history of the entire world. There's only been 16 years of peace in America's history. Now at different times, after different wars, we've seen those baby booms, but is there really a good time to ever have children? And God is telling him, even in exile, if they can have children, children, they should have children. He's encouraging them in that. We have some friends of ours that met and married after they met each other in a refugee camp. They were living in Eritrea, where they had grown up. And because of persecution and war, they fled to Ethiopia, to refugee camp. They were there around five years, and they met each other and married there. And they moved on with life, even though I'm sure that was really difficult. What an interesting story that must be to tell, but I'm sure it was very hard at the time. But it's one thing to be a refugee somewhere, but it's a whole another thing to be in captivity in another country. But it's supposed to build houses, plant gardens, get married. Number four, seek the welfare of the city. The city that has brought you into exile, you're supposed to pray for it. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah is saying, this is your home, whether you like it or not. These four things will help them to stay productive and to give them meaning and purpose in their lives. And there's that obvious level of permanence. My wife and I, uh, or my wife and uh, Liesl and I have uh, lived here in the Quad Cities now for seven years. We bought a house when we first moved here. We had two children when we moved here. We've since had two more. God's blessed us with four children. We planted a garden this year. But I don't know if I could say I'm a true Midwesterner yet because I still don't have a snowblower. (laughs) I think my back still has a few more good years left in it. But there's that level of permanence. When you dig in, you dig roots where you are and the place God has you. But they're supposed to seek the welfare of the city. Welfare there is from the word shalom that you've all heard before. It means peace, prosperity, total well-being. They're supposed to seek this for the city that they are in captivity and in exile. So asking themselves this question, how can I make this community a better place? Now you often hear people say that, we, let's make the world a better place. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the Christian sense, I think more God-honoring, more gospel-saturated, praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done in the quad cities as it is in heaven. Some of you maybe have lived here your entire life, and others of you are just passing through. Maybe you're in the military or you're, you're students. But remember this, no matter how long, God has you here for a specific reason and a specific purpose. So invest, even if it's only for a short time. Or again, maybe you've lived here your whole life, and maybe God's been trying to nudge you to leave for a long time. Maybe he's saying, It's time to move on. But no matter the case, seek to plant deep roots unless God says otherwise. A great quote from Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan minister. He says this, The great master gardener, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a wonderful providence with his own hand planted me here, where by his grace in this part of his vineyard I grow. And here I will abide till the great master of the vineyard think fit to transplant me. So whether you've lived here your whole life, you're just passing through. 
God calls his people to do hard things. Would you agree? Especially waiting. If you read scripture, God asks people to wait all the time. And we wait all the time for different things in different stages of life. Some very interesting statistics on waiting that you can look up on the internet. And some of these are really sad and sobering. But if you watch a lot of TV or watch a lot of YouTube, it says over the course of your life, you may watch something like two plus years of ads or commercials. That's a lot of waiting for your show to come back on. It says over the course of your life, you may spend up to six months of your life waiting in lines. You know how long you might spend waiting at red lights? Like four months of your life. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that so sad? All the things you could have gotten done while waiting at red lights. I hate traffic. You know how long you might spend on hold waiting for a representative? Maybe two months of your life on hold. And then we wait on people, right? Husbands, you know how long you wait on your wives to get ready? I'm not going to go there. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm sure it's a while. But waiting can be really hard. If you're a student thinking about just waiting to graduate and to finish school, you want to get there and be done with that. Maybe if you're single and you're, you're waiting to get married, and it's hard to wait. Maybe you're married, but you really want to have children, and you're still waiting for that to happen. Maybe you're pregnant. You're waiting for that due date of your baby. You can't wait any longer. For some of you, maybe you're waiting on test results to come back. Maybe you're worried about your health and what's taking place. Maybe for some of you, you're waiting for a child or a grandchild to come back to God. Here's the thing in our waiting that we need to understand. Sometimes when we're waiting, we can stop living. So we need to be so careful with that. Because we're always waiting, it seems, for the next thing. We're never satisfied with where we're at. But in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So some of the children of Israel would be born, live, and die in exile. Here's a good connection point, though, with the life of Daniel. Daniel's experience in going to Babylon was not all bad. God used him in a mighty way, and he knew how long it was going to be. Daniel 9, 1 and 2, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's story of thriving in Babylon. He was taken after that first attack with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, remember? They came from noble families, young men without blemish and good appearance with wisdom and knowledge, competence. They were book smart and they were street smart. They resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's food and drink. God gave them favor. They had 10 times more wisdom and understanding than their Babylonian peers and ability to interpret dreams. And God used Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace to show the king who the one true God was. Daniel in the lion's den showed another king who the one true God was. And some believe that Daniel actually in his old age was able to return back to Jerusalem. But all of that to say, 
God had them there for a specific reason, a specific purpose, and they were supposed to thrive there, even in exile. And then we come to verses 11 through 14, and Jeremiah 29, 11, we can't talk about Jeremiah 29 without getting into this verse. This might be your favorite verse. This might be your life verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that's a great verse, but we need to understand the context that this is in. And now that we have that, this was written to people who are in exile, who are captive in Babylon. Now, I believe in principle, we can apply that to our lives as God's people now. Because I do believe God has a plan and a future and a hope for each and every one of us in our lives. But there's a little more weight to it when we understand this context and who this was written to originally. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Jeremiah 29 may be your favorite verse. We understand who this was written to once again. But we see God's hand all over this. Remember verse 4, whom I sent to exile? We see it again in verse 14. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile again. So from that, we know this, that God is sovereign, yet man is responsible. It's God who led them into exile, but their sin got them there in the first place. So repentance for them is needed. Judgment would cause Israel to seek him wholeheartedly once again. So God's love and compassion for all people, but especially his people, is evident here. In the website, Got Questions, I highly recommend it. Any question you have on the Bible, they give great answers. But it says this, as prophesied in Scripture, the Jewish people would be allowed to return to Jerusalem after seven years of exile. That prophecy was fulfilled in 537 B.C. And the Jews were allowed by King Cyrus of Persia to return to Israel and begin rebuilding the city and temple. The return under the direction of Ezra led to a revival among the Jewish people in the rebuilding of the temple. So there was revival when they finally returned, but they had to be brought to their lowest point before they actually got to that place where they wanted to seek God wholeheartedly. Now, I believe the discipline that God showed them there was restorative, not punitive discipline. And he does that sometimes because he loves us. And we look ahead, what Hebrews says about people living in exile today. Even Abraham, who lived in exile in some ways. Now, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to all nations, and now we are part of that blessing (coughs) and being part of God's people uh, have been passed on. Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. I love this passage. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promise. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Last verse. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, when you think about this passage, they were looking to something that they were never able to experience on earth. In that sense, we are still kind of in that same situation. According to 1 Peter 2.11, we are all exiles and aliens. We're all sojourners, but we're also citizens of heaven if we have a relationship with God. We see that in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One commentary says this, God's promises are glorious, but they are future. God tells us now what he will do later, so so we will not be overcome by the present. So we trust the promises of God, even if they are a long way off. Now, how do we apply all that we've learned today? I want to start by asking yourself this question. Ultimately, where does your allegiance lie? In a land, in a country, with a certain political party or tribe or group of people that you identify with? Or does your allegiance lie with God? Now, number one, we're to exhibit a posture of presence wherever we are. Wherever God has you, be all there. The grass is not always greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it, as some have said. Now, this is not just in location-wise, but also stage of life-wise. So if you're a student here today, I would encourage you. Maybe you hate being a student. Maybe you want to move on. But remember this. This is where God has you right now. So be all there. In your workplace, maybe you love your job, maybe you hate your job, maybe you need to look for another job, but wherever God has you right now in your workplace, that's where he has you for a specific purpose and reason, so be all there. In your singleness, maybe you're struggling with that, you want to be with someone, you want to be married, but realize God has you there for a reason and a purpose, so be all there. The same in your marriage right now. Whether things are going well or not going well, that's where God has you, so be all there. And in your parenting, in your home, those young moms and dads, hey, I'm there. Like, it's tough. Sometimes the thoughts come into your head, man, this will be maybe a little easier when they get a little older. But then just the older parents just say, oh, no, it won't. (laughs) So what do we have to look forward to? But you think about that. God has us there for a specific reason, a specific purpose in that. So be all there. And in your retirement, God has you there for a reason. Maybe it wasn't what you thought it would be. Maybe you miss being busy and working. But no matter the fact, God has you there for a reason. So be all there. Number two, work hard and see the fruits of your labor. Now, just like being fruitful and multiplying, we see this. Work was created before the fall of man. This was good and productive for mankind. See that in the Garden of Eden after the flood. They're supposed to subdue the earth, fill the earth and subdue it. And we see this in the exile. They were supposed to work hard and see the fruits of their labor. 
and planting those gardens and building homes and being made in God's image. I believe we're all creative. We're all able to do things because of how God has made us. So we can design, we can build, we can create. And I think in those ways, we can bring glory to God. Number three, bear fruit. Physically speaking, spiritually speaking, have children if you can. Make disciples who make disciples. We have spiritual children as well that I believe that we can pass on the faith to, and they can pass on the faith. I love this quote from Scott Hubbard from an article called Love the Place You Want to Leave. It says this, God tells them to build and live, plant and eat, marry and parent. Settle into this place you want to leave. Sink your roots into this soil, hard as it may feel, and dare to believe that fruit can grow even here. Number four, make your community better. Again, people have different ideas of what that means. It's more than just making the world a better place and more peaceful. It includes the physical and spiritual needs of those around us. Jesus was a master at this. Anytime he healed somebody, he also forgave them of their sins. He helped them with their physical and their spiritual needs. How can we do that with people? In James 2, it says faith without works is dead. We need both of these things in order to be gospel-focused. Is there a certain group of people that God has called you to to reach out to? Maybe refugees, maybe the homeless, maybe a certain group of people here in the Quad Cities that we can reach out to and help and lift up and show them Jesus. Number five, learn to wait well. Make the most of it. Don't wait for life to happen to you. There's this great book I recommend to young adults called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Sometimes in our lives, especially as young people, we don't know what to do when we're trying to figure out God's will for our lives. We're making decisions about life and school and work and future relationships. And sometimes we have two good options, but we don't know what to do because we're waiting for a sign from God or writing on the wall. Sometimes you just do something. You just got to make a decision and let God carry you through that. So I encourage you in that. In your waiting, sometimes you just have to make a decision and trust God with that. Number six, seek God wholeheartedly. This is what finally brought them back out of that exile because they finally sought God wholeheartedly and then revival took place. Trust his plan. He has a plan then, has a plan now for us as the church and for us as individuals. So trust that plan. And number eight, remember your true citizenship. We're citizens of heaven. We don't want to get too comfortable here because God has a place prepared for us. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. I want to close uh, this morning with showing one more painting. And this is from a painting called Expulsion from the Garden of Eden by Cole Thomas uh, from 1828. This is a very haunting image because on one side, you have the perfection of the Garden of Eden and this place that Adam and Eve are being kicked out of because of their sin. So you have the light on the one side and the darkness on the other side. And on this side, you see the beginning of disease and death and decay and destruction. And have you ever thought about the weight that Adam and Eve must have felt when they had sinned? No, it was at one sin, but it was against God, against his law. What that must have felt like, leaving that perfect place and going to this fallen world. Did they realize what this would mean for the rest of humanity? That image is stuck in my mind. But we feel that at times when we sin, when we turn our backs on God. We feel that guilt, that shame from that thing that we've done. Imagine what they have felt, but then 
Imagine what Jesus felt when he took the weight of the sins of the entire world on him and what that must have felt like. But he did that for us. He did that for you and for me. Giving us an opportunity to be made right with God. If we believe in that he died for our sins and he's given us an opportunity to have a relationship with him, bridging that gap between us and God. 